Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and in this episode, I'm joined by Avi Noam Pat to talk about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising and its afterlife, how it was understood during the time of the Second World War itself, and how it's been remembered in the decades since. Avi Noam Pat is the Doris and Simon Conover Chair of Judaic Studies at the University of Connecticut where he's also the director of the Center for Judaic Studies and Contemporary Jewish Life. Avi's research focuses on the history of the Holocaust and its aftermath, and his first book was titled Finding Home and Homeland, Jewish Youth and Zionism in the Aftermath of the Holocaust, which was published in 2009. His most recent book, which we'll be talking about today on the podcast, is titled The Jewish Heroes of Warsaw, The Afterlife of the Revolt, and it was published in 2021 by Wayne State University Press. The Jewish Heroes of Warsaw, which is the starting point for our conversation today, explores how the Jews who fought in the 1943 Warsaw Ghetto Uprising have been understood and why it matters. People outside of Europe knew about the uprising soon after it took place. But given the war's chaos, it was unclear who exactly had led the revolt. So in the months and years that followed, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising was instrumentalized or put to use by Jewish socialists, Zionists, as well as many others who all wanted to take credit for the uprising and thereby lend legitimacy to their own ideologically driven understanding of the ghetto uprising and the Holocaust at large. So in our conversation today, Avi and I use the book as a platform to think deeply about how the ghetto uprising has been mythologized, the place of Warsaw in modern Jewish memory altogether, and the history and memory of the Holocaust at large. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy our conversation, I hope that you'll take a moment to subscribe to Jewish History Matters wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll automatically get the newest episodes as they're released. And also that you'll take a look at Avi's terrific book, The Jewish Heroes of Warsaw, which I've linked to in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, Avi. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me here. Yeah, I'm really just really pleased that you can join us on the podcast. The topic of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising and then the broader issues of historical memory related to the uprising and the Holocaust in general, I think, are really big, really important. There's a lot to talk about. And I think that your book does a really fantastic job of opening up a number of really important issues uh, relating to it. I think that one place that we might perhaps get started for our conversation today is just like on a very broad level when we talk about the, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. When we talk about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, in a lot of ways, this is not an unknown topic, right? It's it's very clearly both something that scholars have been studying and talking about for a long time, as well as being a major part of the public consciousness of the Holocaust, both in Israel, uh, in the United States, in Poland as well. In a lot of ways, I think that part of what is interesting about your book is that you're not looking at a new topic in and of itself, but you are looking at it in a new way. And also you're looking at it specifically because it has been so prominent in terms of historical memory. When you look at the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, you frame the book as talking about the afterlife of the revolt. So what has been 
the afterlife of the Warsaw Ghetto uprising, both in terms of the contemporary time of the 1940s, um, as well as beyond that, thinking about when we ask these questions about the revolt and its afterlife, well, what are we talking about in the first place? Thank you for starting us with that sort of question about the centrality of, of the Warsaw Ghetto and the Warsaw Ghetto uprising, because I think that's sort of this question of, on the one hand, we sort of take it for granted that the Warsaw Ghetto and the Warsaw Ghetto uprising are a central focal point of memory of the Holocaust um, and have been that way since, actually, as I find in the war, since almost the immediate aftermath of the revolt. That is, within the first couple of weeks after the uprising begins on April 19, 1943. And one of the things that I try to understand in the book is why does that happen, right? So to not really sort of take it for granted that this would be the case, but really try to understand sort of what is the process that puts Warsaw and the uprising at the center of Jewish memory of the Holocaust. And this is something that happens almost immediately after the revolt. It's not something that takes, you know, several years of research after the war or taking time for survivor testimony to begin to develop um, in the aftermath of the war, but that there is basically reporting in real time that is taking place in the Jewish press in the aftermath of the revolt, that is within three or four days after it, which that timing that it's taking place, that is that on the one hand, you have sort of the Jewish world by nineteen, the late 1942, you have broad knowledge of sort of the breadth of the destruction of European Jewry and these huge displays of, of mourning, collective mourning for the destruction of European Jewry. And then there is almost this shock and surprise that um, how is it possible that a revolt is being carried out in the Warsaw Ghetto, which we thought it basically had been destroyed. And so within the first few weeks after the revolt takes place, you see it beginning to be sort of the central focal point of both Jewish collective memory but also fascination and curiosity. How did this happen? Who were the heroes that carried this out? And within the first year after the revolt, this date of April 19th becomes the date of mass commemoration. So I also found that really fascinating, right? Sort of how is this, how does this process begin to take place that this becomes the date that becomes the focal point where sort of the Jewish world says, yes, this is the event that we have been waiting to sort of make as our focal point of commemoration. This is the date that we will seize upon as the date that we will commemorate the destruction of European Jewry. And what is amazing to me is that you see this happening. So when you talk about afterlife of the revolt, the afterlife of the revolt is almost immediately after, right? It's not that we're talking about a decade after, two decades after, we're talking about uh, while the war is still going on. There are a whole bunch of different aspects of that story, which are particularly interesting. And one of them is that you're talking about the way in which the world outside of Europe is aware of what's taking place in Eastern Europe, broadly speaking, and um, particularly in the uh, in the case of the Warsaw Ghetto uprising. People know pretty quickly after the revolt takes place that it had happened and uh, and they're interested in it. And I think that this is really fascinating and really interesting as we ask kind of perhaps a big question, which is, what is it that the world at large and the Jewish communities outside of Europe in particular, what did they know while the Holocaust was taking place? And how did this change over the course of time? You know, you're talking about a period after 1942, which I think is the point in time which 
when it's generally understood that, for instance, you know, American Jewry, for instance, knew that there was a genocide taking place, uh, you know, uh, against the Jews, you know, following the confirmation from the State Department, for instance. And this is part of a time when Jewish public opinion is changing as a result of knowledge of what is taking place in Europe surrounding issues like Zionism and you know so on and so forth. But in some ways, it's also like very surprising that people would know so much when you consider the ways in which the fog of war, so to speak, clouded the ability for people to know what was taking place, both about the Holocaust in general and also about specific events. So when you look at this immediate afterlife of the Warsaw Ghetto uprising, very shortly after it takes place, what does this tell us about the ways in which Jews around the world, as well as the broader public, were progressively getting a better grasp on what was actually taking place in Europe in the course of the Holocaust. Yeah. So one of the the really interesting things that I found in doing research is that on the one hand, right, so you have this event that becomes a, a focal point of memory. And you know, Hasia Diner in her book on American Jewish memory of the Holocaust talks about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising as the the prism through which American Jews chose to remember the Holocaust. But she sort of leaves it as an open question as to why that happens. The really fascinating things is that there is sort of this dichotomy that takes place, which is that the event itself on a symbolic level becomes this focal point, right? That this is the date that um, will become the focus of, of commemorations. And the fact that Jews decided to to rise up to throw off the yoke of Nazi oppression becomes a really important symbol. It becomes sort of this symbol of of Jewish resistance, of armed Jewish resistance, of revolt, right, which connects to all sorts of other aspects of Jewish history, right? Um, Israel Goodman calls it sort of the first Jewish revolt since the Bar Kokhba revolt, right? So this idea that, you know, Jews throw off the yoke of oppression. So it's really important as a symbol. But in many ways, at the same time, Jews around the world understand the significance of the event within sort of pre-existing political frameworks. So Jews who are members of Zionist movements see this as a confirmation of a Zionist worldview, this idea that, see, this proves that sort of um, the Jewish future in the diaspora was completely fated for destruction anyway. And in many ways, it was, as we'll, we will find out subsequently, Zionist youth who led the revolt who understood this. Bundists, and it's if in the first year after the revolt, sort of uh, around the Jewish world, it is primarily the Jewish socialists, members of the Bund, who take credit for leadership of the revolt, right? It takes the Zionists about a year to figure out that it was their movement members who sort of played this central role. And so Bundists, especially in New York, but in other parts of the world, say, see, this is proof of the evidence of the Jewish working class rising up to throw off the yoke of oppression. And sort of they are the ones who are able to, you know, organize and lead the revolt even in a Polish sense, right? That this is interpreted as sort of Polish citizens who are rising up to throw off sort of the yoke of oppression. So this happens symbolically, but it's also understood through these pre-existing political frameworks. And a lot of this also has to do with, if you analyze the way that this is covered in the press. The press, you know, in the 1940s, as it is today, is a vehicle for the dissemination of different political ideologies. And so this event 
is covered through these political frameworks, right? So that, you know, different, there's like this big news, but it's also covered according to the political framework that the press employs. And so for the first year after the revolt, it is not the name um, Mordechai Anilevich that is the name that is associated with being sort of the main leader of the revolt. It's actually the name of a young Bundist uh, explosives expert, a chemical engineer by the name of Michal Klepfisch, who was the name who was most associated as sort of being the soul of the revolt, the leader of the uprising. And for basically the first year after the revolt, the name Klepfisch is synonymous with the revolt in the Warsaw Ghetto, right? And this is the name that's covered in, in the Forverts in New York. This is the name that's known. And also in the Yishuv in Palestine, this is the name that's known. And it takes a year as people are trying to figure out, like, who is this? Who are the people who carried this out? Who are the heroes of the uprising? It takes time to figure out the identities. But in many ways, what's interesting to me is that there is like this you know, sort of symbolic nature of the revolt, the fact that Jews rose up to throw off Nazi oppression. And then you have like a political competition that takes place to identify the names of the heroic figures who who carried off the revolt. But in many ways, there's this distinction, you know, American, for a lot of American Jews, it becomes just more significant that the idea that a revolt took place than the identities of who actually did it. And in the American context, Within the first year after the revolt, you see all sorts of fictionalizations of the revolt taking place, right? So you see like radio plays about the revolts uh, being broadcast within six months of the revolt. You see stage plays being written with, you know, fictionalized versions of of the revolt taking place. This prefigures things that are going to happen later on. You know, John Hersey writes a novel in 1950 called The Wall that is a fictionalization of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Leon Uris writes Mila 18 that in many ways is sort of a historical account, but it's a fictionalization of the uprising. Because for an American audience, it's more the symbolic value that actually took place. Whereas in Israel, it becomes really, really important to identify like which party were they from? Which youth movement were they from? You know, were they like competing against the Bundes to make sure, no, 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 let's make sure that it's our people who have credit for organizing the uprising. And that's a whole other story by itself. That sort of internal competition to make sure that the identities of the rebels are are well known. To go back to the question I posed a moment ago, is that you're saying that in the time of the war itself, right, the immediate aftermath of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, people knew that the uprising had taken place. They didn't know all the details and that this kind of made the uprising into, in some ways, kind of a blank canvas that people could could utilize in whichever way that they wanted to, like you said, different media outlets, different movements, ideologies, and so on. This changes over time as people learn more about what actually took place in the revolt itself. You know, so what is going on here then in terms of the changing, in terms of the changing perception of the revolt in this immediate aftermath, and how does it relate to the general situation of people kind of getting a grasp on what's taking place? In Europe, you know, basically, as people are working essentially with imperfect information. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that's so fascinating about this story is you, you earlier you use the term fog of war, right? And sort of so you have like these these snippets of information that will break through, and without access to detailed information, there is sort of a creation of trying to imagine what's happening. And this is an event that kind of breaks through 
you know, from the war zone to the, the free world. You know, uh, David Roski's and Naomi Demon in their book on Holocaust literature talk about that there are certain events that kind of break through in the period of the war. And this is one of these events that breaks through. And what's what's so interesting is that for a long time, there was this conception that sort of Holocaust memory is shaped by political interests in the aftermath of the war, right? And sort of this politicization of, of the memory of the war. And one of the things that fascinated me about this story is that there is a dynamic interplay related to sharing of information that is taking place during the war. There are frameworks and there are ways to share information during the war. For example, when the Forverts covers on April 23rd, so four days after the revolt takes place, and they cover this as a you know front page story that there is an uprising in the Warsaw Ghetto. They cite specifically that there is a secret radio broadcast that came out of Warsaw that shared this information about uh, that Warsaw was burning, that there was this massive conflagration, this battle taking place in the heart of you know the the largest city. So this came from a radio broadcast. Jews who were fighting in the ghetto are smuggling out information about what's happening in the ghetto. Antek Zuckerman, who is this basically the second in command, who has been sent out of the ghetto to collect arms before the revolt begins, he is sitting outside the ghetto with Adolf Berman, who's the head of the Jewish National Committee, and they are writing uh, memoranda, they're writing daily reports, accounts of information, based on both what they're witnessing outside the ghetto walls and then information that they're getting from inside the ghetto. You know, they, they, there are actually a couple of phone calls that take place in the first few days of the revolt. There are, you know, Anilevich's famous letter that is smuggled out of the ghetto. Couriers who sneak out of the ghetto reporting on what's happening. People who manage to sneak out through uh, sewers under the ghetto, right? So there are different ways that information is being shared. Zuckerman and Berman are writing this down. And they have this incredible information. And Leon Feiner from the Bund also is writing reports. They have this incredible information that they need to get out to the world, right? And Zuckerman and Berman realize that they need to record it for posterity. They need to record it for the rest of the world. But they also are really hopeful that this will lead the Polish underground to assist them, right? To say, it, we are you know, fighting back against the Nazis. We need your help. Now is the time for the Polish underground to rise up and revolt against uh, the Nazi occupying force. This is what's happening in Warsaw. Please help us. So they're trying to get this information out of Poland to, in particular, the Polish government in exile in London to say, it's time, right? Let's fight back, right? Help us. This information is not only going through secret radio broadcasts, not only going through telegrams, there are couriers who basically take these reports, cable them to London, or over time, more detailed reports that then are smuggled out of Poland and smuggled through various channels to get to London, where you have these very detailed reports about what has happened that make their way to London and New York and Tel Aviv within the first year, and actually within the first couple of months after the revolt in some cases. So this points to what you're talking about, a very detailed exchange of information that's taking place during the war itself, right? That there are uh, frameworks for information to be exchanged. And then 
it's really important to try to understand as a historian, right? Like who's the audience that they have in mind? So it's not just that they're trying to record this for posterity so that we'll know, you know, that Jews fought back and, and that this will be recorded for posterity. But there's also a very specific audience in mind. Now is the time to fight back. We have a real fighting force here in the ghetto. Help us. And to be honest with you, a lot of the subsequent accounts, you know, talk about a certain amount of bitterness, right? That we didn't get the help that we needed because let's face it, you know, the Polish underground decided, look, this is not the right time. We're going to wait. And they wait till August of 44 to organize their revolt um, in the hopes that they'll throw off the Germans. And of course, the Soviets sort of watch it, let the Germans crush the Polish revolt, and then march into Warsaw after that. Part of what you're highlighting here is the ways in which some of our assumptions about the nature of how information is exchanged during the war are perhaps incorrect, right? We like I think I mentioned before the ways in which people knew certainly not everything about what was happening during the war. And I think people assume, and perhaps many historians as well, that people outside of the war zone knew close to nothing about what was taking place. And it's certainly, I think, the case that that people learn more over the course of time, but you're indicating the ways in which there is this ongoing exchange of information, certainly to smuggle information out of Eastern Europe to alert people as to what's taking place, both in general terms about the Holocaust, as well as specific events like the Warsaw Ghetto. And I'm reminded, for instance, of um, the death of Emanuel Ringelblum, the, the historian you know, who spearheaded the Oynik Shabbos archive in the Warsaw Ghetto in particular, that, that Ivo, for instance, is reporting on his death almost immediately after he is murdered. You know, So it's not like people knew nothing. And I think that part of what's interesting here and and perhaps I'm kind of betraying my own personal interests here in terms of the history of information, but you're indicating some of the really interesting things about how information works and operates in an environment like the Holocaust, where like you look at the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, the it's not just a question of physical resistance against the Nazis and having the ability to control the ghetto itself by the Jews, but also the ways in which all of a sudden Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto are able to communicate with the outside world. It's this very nature of information exchange that manifests the success of the revolt while it's taking place. And what's so interesting about that, Jason, is that it goes both ways, right? So it's not just that they're smuggling information out of Warsaw or out of Poland in this case, and we can broaden this out sort of more broadly to look at Europe as a whole, but in Warsaw in particular, they're smuggling this information out and then they also get information back in, right? Because the underground networks and the Polish government in exile in particular, there is, you know, large amounts of money that like the Zionist movement and the Jewish Labor Committee are are trying to convey to the underground movements to support their work, right? So that is getting smuggled in. There's information that's being smuggled in. So when Ringelblum, for example, as Sam Casso titles the book, Who Will Write Our History, there is this idea of making sure that there is sort of a very specific accounting that is being created by Jews themselves to make sure that they are able to communicate both to the future and to the world at the time what, what is happening so that it won't be written from the perspective of the victors, right? And and so you have like this famous account of the destruction of the Warsaw Ghetto that the 
commander of um, Jürgen Stroop, the commander of the German forces who destroys the ghetto um, and writes this you know, account um, that is used all the time. The Warsaw Ghetto is no more, and it's sort of the famous Stroop report. And a lot of the photographs that we see of the destruction of the Warsaw Ghetto come from this report. And I made a decision that, you know, yes, I would use it as a counterpoint to compare to the accounts that the ghetto fighters were writing about what was happening in the ghetto. But I was going to try to rely as little as possible on the Stroop report, only as a point of comparison to see sort of how their information lines up, because I knew that he was going to minimize German losses and emphasize the success of the campaign. And at the same time, the, the ghetto fighters were going to emphasize their successes and sort of um, and emphasize German losses and minimize sort of the strength of. So it, it was interesting to see like in real time how these different accounts are taking place. So, yes, they're getting information out. And there is a point by the beginning of 1944 where Antek Zuckerman in particular, who's um, Yitzhak Zuckerman, who becomes sort of the driving force after the war in the creation of the Ghetto Fighters House. And he plays a key role in organizing the surviving Ghetto Fighters after they escape from the ghetto, which is a whole incredible story, too, that they, you know, managed to sneak out through the sewers under the ghetto. And he plays the, this critical role in saying, we have to write and record our experiences right now. I need you to tell me exactly what happened in the ghetto you know, write it down for me. And we have to smuggle this out of Warsaw now as the war is, is still taking place. The surviving ghetto fighters play a critical role in shaping the memory of what happened in the Warsaw ghetto while the war is still taking place. And one of the reasons I think that Zuckerman wants to do this, it's not only from a perspective of, of Ringelblum to make sure that they're history is is recorded and their actions are being recorded for posterity. But he's actually really concerned that in the Jewish world, in the free world, they're getting it wrong. For example, in May of 1944, they managed to smuggle out this microfilm that has 120 pages of documentation on it. And in the documentation, there is a detailed report that Zuckerman writes of the history of the Jewish fighting organization. There are testimonies of surviving ghetto fighters that are smuggled out in this report. Actually, Ringelblum's last letter is smuggled out as part of this report, the, the letter that he writes to Yivo and, and to other Jewish organizations. One of the reasons, one of that's cited in there is, they mention this in there, it's, it's nice that you're highlighting this, um, that Michal Klepfish played a really important role in sort of doing explosives work and you know, he, he plants this, um, this basically this landmine in the entrance to the ghetto that explodes under the street of the ghetto as a German platoon is marching in. But Klepfisch was not the, the leader of the Jewish fighting organization. It was Mordechai Anilevich. And we need to make sure that you know who the actual leaders were. And we need to make sure that this history is being written in the right way. And there, uh, you know, members of the Zionist youth movements and the, of the Jewish fighting organization are really worried that sort of the history has been written in the wrong way, and they want to make sure that this account is is properly recorded. And so they, they're they sort of eager and desperate, because they don't know if they're going to survive till the end of the war, to write it down, to record it as they remember it, and to make sure that this information gets out during the war. 
I want to just jump on this for a second, because as you pointed out earlier in our conversation, one of the key questions about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, particularly in Israel and Palestine, you know, in, in the 40s and in the 50s and beyond, is kind of who does it belong to? Who was responsible for the uprising? Who was in charge and who can take credit you know, for, uh, for this revolt against the Germans? And as you just indicated, it, there was a very keen sense, particularly among the Zionist leaders of the revolt, that, that they wanted to make sure that the story was being told correctly, so to speak. And I think that part of what is interesting here is this issue of how it is that the history of the revolt and the historical memory of it as well is something that is a, it's, it's an item that people want to take for themselves, right? Whether we're talking about the Bund, you know, the Jewish labor Bund trying to claim that they were, you know, the leading factor initially, then Zionist leaders also trying to take credit for it and so on and so forth. It's not just a question of telling history correctly. You know, or getting the facts right and so on. It's also highly political and ideological as well. It is deeply political, and it's also political in the way that it's sort of either utilized by the movements, but also then in the way that the memory is, is subsequently shaped. So there is, I would say in the first year after the revolt, there is some deep ambivalence in the Yishuv in, you know, the, the, in Palestine over how to make use of this event. And and a lot of that has to do with the fact that they don't exactly know the identity of who carried this out, and that the Bund is doing a fantastic job of taking credit for what happened. And this becomes a major point of contention afterwards, right? Like, who was the first to organize it? And Zuckerman writes about, like, I or invited them first, and they didn't want to join our fighting organization, and if this was a Zionist initiative. But it's, the, you know, the, the Jewish fighting organization in the Warsaw Ghetto is composed both of Zionist youth movements and Zionist organizations, and the Bund, really after the, the Great Deportation, so after the catastrophic destruction, destruction of Warsaw in the summer of 42, decides to join the fighting organization. And I think one of the things that's so important to understand is how split, how deeply divided these political organizations were, to the extent that you know, you have basically different functioning Jewish organizations organizing their own underground work, but they're not really working together, right? Like, I think that's really important to understand. It's very hard for, for most audiences today to understand, right? So you have the Bund, the Jewish socialists, which are maintaining their own sort of underground press and underground educational networks and youth movements, and then the Zionist groups. And it's only after the Great Deportation that they say we have to come together to work together. In the Yishuv in Palestine, for the first year after the revolt, as the Bundes in New York in particular are taking credit for the revolt and saying it was Michal Klepfish and it was our people and we we're the ones who carried out the revolt and it was a mass popular uprising, not an uprising led by Zionist youth, you know, they're doing a great job taking credit. And it becomes, you know, April 19th, 1944 is a huge date in New York. Uh, thousands of people gather in in New York for these for this commemoration that takes place, and you don't have the same thing happening in the Yishuv in Palestine in April nineteenth, nineteen forty four. It's only after, you know, Zuckerman and his report gets smuggled out, and Anilevich becomes known that they say, "Ah, okay, we understand what happened here. These were members of Zionist youth movements who organized it." 
and they were able to organize it because as Zuckerman explains to them, it was our connection to the Zionist movement. It was our connection to Israel that inspired us to carry out the revolt. Because of the sort of ideology that we had, you know, absorbed from our all our years in the movement, we understood that we had to organize the revolt. And only then do they understand how they can fit this into their framework, that the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising was part of the Zionist struggle to throw off centuries of sort of Jewish oppression in the diaspora. And then in some sense, it was a first salvo, a first shot that was fired by Zionist youth that would inspire, you know, the struggle to create the state of Israel. But it takes over a year after the revolt takes place for the Zionist movement to say, oh, wait a second, now we understand how we can fit this into our sort of Zionist framework. And by 45, so by the end of 44 into 45, you see the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising then being used by Zionist movements. So in the DP camps, for example, this should inspire us in our continued struggle to see the creation of the state of Israel. And really, up to the present day, that is the framework within which it has been broadly understood, right? That this sort of Zionist framework of understanding the revolt within a broader framework of Zionist youth who lead the revolt, who are part of a longer struggle to create the state of Israel. And then you see this really sort of take off by 45, 46. Many of the ideas that we associate with the Holocaust today are things that actually took time for people to realize and come to be aware of. How is it that the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising comes to take a central place in historical memory and in public consciousness about what was taking place at the time and also in the aftermath of the Holocaust? I think that you've really you know, hit a chord here in terms of thinking about how something that really has been cemented so clearly, especially in Israeli and broadly speaking Zionist historical memory of the Holocaust, you know, it took time for that to come to its place that it has had now for many decades. It's interesting, right? Because we say take time, but it's on a micro level, right? Like some people listening to this might say, okay, so it takes a year. That seems really fast, right? But one of the things, like it's, I would say by, to be honest with you, one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book was I was fascinated. So my first book looks at Zionist youth movements in the, in the DP camps in you know, post-war Germany after the war. And I was fascinated by this idea that um, you have kibbutz groups that are functioning in the displaced persons camps after the war that are um, composed in many cases of survive, young survivors who have managed to survive in various ways during the war. And the Zionist youth movements in 1945, when they create these groups for young survivors, they name them after, so they call them like Hashomer Tzair, one of the socialist Zionist youth groups, it names all its kibbutz groups after its heroic members who died in the Warsaw Ghetto. So you have the Ghetto Fighters Kibbutz named after Mordechai Nalevich, and you have the Ghetto Fighters Kibbutz named after Tosia Altman, and you have the Ghetto Fighters Kibbutz named after Yosef Kaplan and Shmuel Breslov, and all of these fighters. And I was always fascinated by this. I'm like, by 1945, this sort of process of mythologizing is already taking place. So, and you can read these accounts by, you know, young survivors after the war who are like, I, I didn't know Tosia Altman. My madrich in the kibbutz told me the story of Tosia Altman in the ghetto. 
And this is within two years after, after the revolt. So that was fascinating to me, right? Like how quickly does this take place? And this idea that of kind of a mythologizing that's taking place. And at the same time, why is it that certain names are remembered and others are completely forgotten? There could be as many as 50,000 people in the Warsaw Ghetto in 1943 when the Germans begin what seems to the Jews in the ghetto to be the final liquidation. There might be five, 600 members of these fighting organizations who have arms, who are actually sort of fighting in the ghetto. And you have over 40,000 people who just bury themselves in bunkers underground, which is what everybody does in the ghetto. We remember the names of, there's a list that are sent out of, of over 200 names. These are the fighters. These are the names to remember people who fought in the ghettos. And every movement lists their people. But you have a couple hundred names that are written down, not the 40 to 50,000 who are, who are in the ghetto, right? So that also, that sort of dichotomy of like, there are certain heroes we're going to remember but who are the heroes, right? Why do we remember some names and we don't remember the masses, right? All the people who, who are hiding out in the ghetto, which is also a form of resistance. I mean, one of the bigger questions that I'm trying to look at is this dichotomy between armed resistance versus passivity, right? Like why is this sort of enshrined in memory, the idea that you have to take up arms to fight back? Javi Dreyfus, in her book about the end of the Warsaw Ghetto, she makes a very convincing case that actually digging yourself into a bunker underground in the Warsaw Ghetto to hide out and to sort of evade Nazi deportation is probably the most successful form of resistance because you're preventing them from rounding you up and taking you out of the ghetto. You're not going out into the street to shoot them and then die, right? You're resisting in this way. So this is something that happens, right? That these frameworks are, this is the only way that one can fight back with a gun. We've been talking a lot you know, in just the past few minutes about the ways in which memory is constructed or the way in which it, it happened so quickly. As you said, the mythologizing of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, the memorialization of specific ghetto fighters. And I guess part of the question is, so what, right? And what do we learn in the biggest sense as we want to think about for instance, the way in which historical memory operates, you know, the way in which it functions, you know, what do we learn about that kind of big picture issue at, by looking at the ways in which the image of the uprising changed over time in this immediate time period, the way it has been cemented since then? You know, what is it that we take away by looking at the development of historical memory in terms of the uprising and kind of the biggest picture questions about how we understand what is historical memory, why it's important, and how it functions as a social force. One of the big picture sort of takeaways that I think is, is important about this is, on the one hand, you would think, right, you take the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, this sort of major revolt where the Jews who are in the Warsaw Ghetto, the last remaining Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto, managed to hold off the liquidation forces in the ghetto from April 19th till Stroop destroys the, the Great Synagogue on May 16th, and it goes on for four weeks, and sort of this celebrated as this major revolt. And you would think that in some way, this, what's been described as a revolution in Jewish history, would have a major effect on the way in which we interpret and understand Jewish history, and on the ways in which the Holocaust 
affects the ways in which Jews understand their place in the world, right? You would think that it has a major impact on that. And the truth is that I don't think it really does. I think that if you drill down into trying to understand how an event like this is remembered and how the participants in the revolt help to shape the memory of the event as it takes place and how the political frameworks for understanding the event at the time shape the way in which people understand it. It suggests the way in which we understand history is very much influenced by the political frameworks that we use to understand current events at the time, and that those frameworks that we use to understand current events at the time shape the way in which the memory of the event is constructed. And that we have to understand that in many ways, those frameworks continue on to the present day, right? To, to shape the ways in which we, we understand the events at the time. So that the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising is an event which, on the one hand, is sort of this massive revolt, which can be seen as, quote unquote, a revolution in Jewish history. But at the same time, it's sufficiently flexible for the Zionist movement to say, aha, you see, this is an event that proves that Jews have to end their lives in the diaspora and create the state of Israel, right? Because that's the significance of what it means. But at the same time, you can have Jewish socialists who say, aha, you see, this is an event that represents the will of the Jewish working classes to organize together and throw off the revolt of fascist oppression. And you can have at the same time, you know, sort of a Polish national construction of the memory that says, aha, you see, these are Polish citizens who were fighting off the German occupying forces and resisted them in the name of defending Polish democracy, right? So you have these three different pol uh, political frameworks that at the time are used to understand the event and are still to this day sort of contesting the memory of the event. I think one of the things that we have to understand is that the ways in which the frameworks for understanding at the time continue to shape the ways in which we understand it today. And the bigger issue, which is that I'm not sure, and David Engel argues this in um, his book called Historians of the Jews and the Holocaust. He says, you know, that, that we would think that the Holocaust would completely reshape the ways in which we understand Jewish history. That doesn't happen. You have basically two major schools of the writing of Jewish history. You have a sort of Zionist school that understands Jewish history from one perspective, and you have another school that, under, that sort of affirms the possibilities of Jewish life in the diaspora. And the Holocaust hasn't really done anything to change that. American Jews can look at the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising and say, you see, this sort of is an example of, of Jews who are able to fight back and resist Nazi oppression, and they can project certain frameworks on it. And in Israel, you can do the same thing. It doesn't do anything to necessarily change that. So that, to me, is a big takeaway, this, this sort of sense that it doesn't really, you know, the, the frameworks that are in existence at the time shape the ways in which it is understood and also shape subsequent memory of the event. Yeah. And as you pointed out, the memory of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising is flexible enough that it provides a perfect example of what Michael Rothberg talks about as multi-directional memory. It's not a zero-sum game, necessarily, about who gets to claim a historical event or a historical topic or theme as their own. Uh, you pointed to three different ways, whether we're talking about Jewish nationalism, Jewish socialism, even 
Polish nationalism as well, of people who are claiming the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And I think it's it's a really fascinating uh, case study to look at, to, to think about the ways in which historical memory functions in a society or in multiple societies. And that's just three. And I, you know, I didn't even mention, you know, for years, the, the revisionist Zionists, who some of the, the most significant battles in the, and let's not kid ourselves, like most of the battles in the Warsaw Ghetto take place in the first three, three days. And, you know, there's like major confrontations that take place in the first three days. And one of the most significant battles takes place in Murnovsky Square in the northern part of, in the northeast corner of the ghetto. And those are revisionist Zionists. That's the Jewish military union that carries this out, the ZZW. And their history is not recorded for decades afterwards, right? Um, because most of their fighters die um, on the second day of the revolt or die after they sneak out of the ghetto and, and are killed. And Moshe Ahrens writes this book decades after the Lawrence, Lawrence Weinbaum. Also, they, they sort of are trying to restore the, the history of the revisionists to say, wait a second. You know, the labor Zionist movements kind of didn't record our history because even in the Zuckerman's accounts where they're like, yeah, there was a revisionist group, but we don't know any of them. So we can't write about what happened to them. It's not at all surprising. Like, you know, do you really think that the labor Zionists, you know, that Mapai is going to want to valorize the, the right wing revisionists? You know, that's it's not going to happen. I think that really points to some of the ways in which you said that the way in which the story has been told, you know, both at the time and also in the decades since then has been so politically contingent on who's telling the story. And I think that that really points to some of the ways in which the ghetto uprising has been used and perhaps we might even say misused in some ways, you know, not just a way of commemorating the Holocaust and memorializing the millions of people who were murdered, but also essentially as a political tool of trying to make sense of what happened in the Holocaust and make very powerful claims about what should be done in its aftermath. Definitely. And it's still, I mean, it continues to to this very day, right? So I, I was just in, in Warsaw just a couple of weeks ago, and you know, it's, you can see it walking around and you can still see sort of the pilgrimages that take place from various different, you know, Jewish youth movements or, or Polish nationalist movements into the Warsaw ghetto. Um, and the ways in which that history is, is either remembered or interpreted or subverted or distorted. I mean, it continues to happen right up into the present day. I mean, one of the things that you highlight and that I think it might be useful for us to think through as well here is that you point out the ways in which the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising very quickly came to be understood in terms of categories of resistance and passivity. Can you maybe say a bit about how those categories emerged surrounding the uprising? And, and, and I think in some ways it's, it's fairly obvious this is an example of resistance against the Nazis, you know, against the perceived passivity of seemingly the majority of other Jews in Europe. And so this is really a, a framework for understanding both the ghetto uprising and also the Holocaust as a whole that people wanted to use the the uprising to illustrate. But in what ways have these categories endured over the decades? They were really enshrined around this revolt. But of course, there's been a great deal of research that also shows that this is not a stark dichotomy in many respects, as we understand the actual history of the events of the Holocaust. So do you have anything that you might want to say here about these categories, passivity and resistance, you know, how the, the uprising helped to enshrine them and perhaps maybe why 
they continue to be such powerful images around the Holocaust and the revolt in particular. I guess I find it somewhat troubling that on the one hand, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising is held up as repeatedly, right, as the symbol of the idea that, see, Jews fought back. And you can see it in the titles of books, right, that sort of say they fought back, right, or collections that continue to be reprinted about Jewish resistance that, uh, you know, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising is pointed to as the example, right, as, you know, they fought back because the general assumption is an assumption of Jewish passivity, is an assumption that the primary mode of behavior, to take the term that is used by Abba Kovner in his call to resistance, you know, in, in his manifesto from uh, New Year's Eve 1941 into 42, that we shall not go like sheep to the slaughter. That is sort of this continuing motif that no matter what we do, no matter what we do, you cannot get rid of this motif, the idea that Jews went to their deaths like sheep to the slaughter. And one of the things that I find perplexing on some level is that on the one hand, you can have the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising held up as an example that Jews fought back. But at the same time, it kind of reinforces this dichotomy between resistance and passivity, between heroes, quote unquote, I put in quotation marks, heroes and Philip Friedman, his collection, heroes and martyrs. Even when you go to the Warsaw Ghetto, and I, I have it on the cover of the book, the Rappaport Monument, right? So you have on the one side of the Rappaport Monument, you have fighters bursting forth from the monument into history, right? They are the ones who are actors in history who are taking agency and taking control of their history by resisting and fighting back, Anilevich at the center. And on the back side of the monument, at Yad Vashem, they're laid out side by side in the original monument. On the back side, you have those Jews basically being marched passively to their deaths who are you know, receding into the stone. They don't burst forth. There is a relief inside the stone. And what's interesting is that even that framework of understanding sort of heroes and martyrs is a framework that existed before the war, right? So Kovner, where does he take this idea of we shall not go like sheep to the slaughter, right? This is a motif that the Zionist movement is using before the war. It's a motif that sort of denigrates the idea of Jews who will die al-Kiddush Hashem, Jews who will die to sanctify God's name, Jews who from a Zionist interpretation will die passively, right? And this is being used, um, Yale Feldman uh, has written this great article about sort of the uses of that term long before, right? So when you read, you know, Bialik's poem on the slaughter about uh, the pogrom in Kishinev, even there, he doesn't use sheep to the slaughter, but you could see this juxtaposition of like, you shouldn't die passively, Jews. You should take agency and fight back. And this is something that that is sort of enshrined even before the war, so that when Kovner uses it and says, you know, Jews don't go sheep like sheep to the slaughter, or the various movements use it, or the Jewish fighting organization uses it in the Warsaw Ghetto, right? Don't board the trains, don't go passively. You see it used in a lot of places. It's sort of held up as this juxtaposition about what is the proper form of Jewish behavior and what is the one to be denigrated. Now, that doesn't even take into account whether this was the right choice or not, because subsequent generations will point out, first of all, that this emphasis and focus on armed resistance has, on the one hand, the Warsaw Ghetto 
has, you know, sort of overshadowed many other cases of resistance in many other ghettos and other forms of resistance that took place in different ghettos. Blachva, they famously call themselves the first ghetto to revolt and uprisings that take place in extermination camps like Treblinka and Sobibor and partisans fighting in the forest. I mean, there are many, many cases, right? But they kind of get overshadowed. And then historians who say, wait a second, what about all these other types of defiance, right? We have to call this resistance too. Bauer, you know, talks about it as Amida, standing up against, right? Isn't this also a form of resistance? Which, of course it is. And then the question about whether armed revolt was even a, a wise choice, right? Because, yes, you're basically taking revenge. You're killing Germans. You're having sort of, and this is the driving force of why people want to fight back to take revenge. But it also is bringing the complete destruction of the ghetto in its wake. And this is a, a much bigger debate about what is the proper strategy with, it, with which to confront um, the Nazis and his armed resistance. It's not a rational strategy, right? Because you have this huge, huge military fighting force. So it's more symbolic, if, if anything, right? It's a way of taking revenge and, and quote unquote, dying with dignity. How is it that the revolt and the historical memory of the revolt has helped to perpetuate those images? As you pointed out, they began before, even before the Second World War, earlier in the 20th century. But also one might say that the ghetto uprising offered a prime example to cement those images in popular consciousness, especially in the state of Israel. Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting, and you can see this both Mark Edelman in the ghetto fights, which is, you know, one of the Bundes, most prominent Bundes leaders to survive from the from the uprising. And Vlad Kamid writes her account in, in 46, really in the foreverts in a series of articles. And Sylvia Lebetkin gives this famous testimony in 46 in the Yishuv and Zuckerman. And they, on the one hand, reinforce this dichotomy around Jewish behavior. But one of the reasons that I think that they're trying to explain to their audiences in 45 and 46, who are asking them, literally asking them, why didn't you fight back? This is a question that they're getting from audiences both in America and in Yishu. Why didn't you fight back? And Zuckerman writes about this and he, he says, you know, yes, when we were 300,000 Jews or 400,000 Jews in the ghetto, if we had risen up at that time, what impact could we have had? Edelman also is trying to explain this and Lebetkin is trying to explain this. And I think they're trying to work through for themselves, right? Like, why didn't we get organized earlier? And I think that this sort of trying to work through that process of they have to explain, well, we didn't know what was going to happen. Had we known retrospectively what was going to happen, we would have approached things differently. But of course, we didn't know. So we focused on all these other underground activities. We focused on education. We focused on maintaining morale. We focused on organizing soup kitchens. We focused on spreading information. We didn't know, right? We didn't have arms and we didn't know. And had we known, we would have done this at the time. But I think part of that is trying to explain what took us so long. And there is, I think there's a deep well of regret. There's a feeling of guilt and there's a feeling of regret of, but they, you know, and, and trying to piece together the information and working back through but also trying to explain to their audiences who are asking them, 
you know, why didn't you fight back? And they don't know, they don't understand. And they're trying to explain that at the time. I mean, I think that brings us back to what we discussed earlier about the lack of information. And this is both taking place outside of Europe, but also inside of it. You know, no one knew what was going to happen next. This is one of the things that when I teach about the Holocaust, you know, it's always, I think, incredibly exciting to see the students come to the realization of how shocking and surprising the events of the Holocaust were, because nobody could have predicted that it would have happened. I think one of the issues that maybe we can dive into as we as we start to come towards our conclusion is why Warsaw? And why is it that the Warsaw ghetto you know, became such a flashpoint of historical memory, you know, the way in which it's been so powerfully cemented in the memory of the Holocaust when, you know, as you just mentioned, you know, there were other uprisings elsewhere. There were Jews elsewhere in Europe who talked about the need to resist against the Nazis, both violently, armed resistance, and other ways as well. And here I'm also thinking in particular about the Oynik Shabbos archive in also the Warsaw Ghetto, that in many respects, it indicates the various types of resistance which Jews took against the Germans. But it's also a very clear parallel to the Warsaw Ghetto uprising as well. It's another image of resistance against the Nazis, which takes place in the Warsaw Ghetto. And, and it really helps to solidify the centrality of Warsaw as a site of resistance in general. At the same time, just like with armed resistance, we know that there were a number of other ghetto archive projects in Bialystok and in Wudj, elsewhere as well. You know, so what is it about Warsaw that gets all of the attention, as it were, uh, in a way that, that in many respects um, drowns out the memory of other sites of resistance against the Nazis? On the one hand, you know, Warsaw is the largest Jewish city, right? So basically, you know, if by the time of the creation of the ghetto, you have almost 500,000 Jews crowded into, into the ghetto, somewhere between 450 and 500,000 Jews. So just to put that in perspective, right? Like there, it's basically, there's New York and there's Warsaw, and these are the two largest Jewish cities in the world. That's really important for us to understand because also, if you think about the symbolic nature of the destruction, right, that you, you're not only talking about the destruction of European Jewry, talking about 3 million Jews who are killed in Poland, but also just trying to fathom the idea that you can have basically an entire city or an entire Jewish city that is erased, right? So you have 500,000, and then the, the the city itself is erased. The city is is not only sort of a a major capital in the sense that it is the capital of a newly independent Poland. It is a major center of, of Jewish politics because it's the capital of, of Poland and all the Jewish political parties have their, their headquarters there. And it's a center of Jewish publishing, right? Like it, it, it's, it's a very significant place. You have this, it's very central in terms of its political significance, in terms of its demographic significance. And in terms of on some level, like, yes, if Vilna is kind of the intellectual capital of Eastern European Jewish life, Warsaw is, let, I don't know, we'll call it the political capital of East European Jewish life, and certainly in the interwar period leading up to 1939. So that's one reason that it attracts um, so much attention. The other thing that I think is important, and this gets into thinking about the timing of events, which you know, I think is really important for us to understand sort of 
why it comes to occupy such a central place in, in memory of the Holocaust. The destruction of European Jewish life, which begins in earnest, really, in the fall of 1941, where you start to see sort of the mass killings that begin to take place in the East with the Einsatzgruppen as they proceed with the invasion of the Soviet Union and the destruction of Jewish Vilna and the destruction of sort of the centers of Jewish life in the East, this precedes the sort of widespread understanding of the enormity of the destruction that it's taking place in the broader Jewish world. And so the point where we started our conversation that the timing of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising in April of 1943 is actually quite significant because you have this broader understanding of the enormity of the destruction, this kind of, on the one hand, fog of war and sort of a lack of information. And then you have this event that kind of breaks through that fog of war with the spread of information to explain what has happened. So you have like this confluence of events, both with the enormity of the city and the centrality of the city, the fact that Jewish Warsaw has been destroyed, this huge city has been erased, and at the same time, the timing of it where there is an awareness of the of the, the enormity of the catastrophe and the fact that this revolt has taken place has broken through this shroud of, of sort of the fog of war and that it's burst into public consciousness at this time. And I think all of those factors come together to help explain sort of why Warsaw. Subsequently, as, as you point out, you do have, you know, uh, things like the Ringelblum archive, which we can't underestimate the significance of the the work of the archive to preserve the memory of what happened in in that ghetto, right? Like this sort of um, enormous work that Ringelblum and his colleagues undertake to preserve it, to create this time capsule for the future that first unearthed in 46, and then more of it in 1950, and hopefully more of it will still be, you know, discovered that help us to a great extent, to understand what happened there. Yeah, I mean, I think that you've pointed out a number of important contingent factors about the specifics of the timing of the revolt and how the world found out about it and so on and so forth. But is there also something going on here in terms of the position of Warsaw in Jewish historical memory more generally? You mentioned, for instance, you know, Vilna as another kind of location of memory in Jewish history. We can also talk about Bialystok and, and elsewhere as well, you know, where you have these large diasporas of Jews from these locations that, that identified so closely with them. Does an understanding of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising and the historical memory of the uprising help us to understand better broader issues in terms of Jewish historical memory of Eastern Europe at large and how Warsaw fits into the constellation of various sites of Jewish culture and Jewish history? you point out something really important, which is that there have to be frameworks in existence for the dissemination of this information, both at the time and then after the war. And so the existence of a diaspora of either people who immigrated from a city beforehand, which of course, right, Warsaw is the capital of Poland. It's a major city. You have a lot of uh, large communities of Jews, both in the Yishuv and in New York and then elsewhere, who come from Warsaw. I think that's that's a really important factor. And then, you know, we, we can't underestimate the significance of the fact that you have very prominent ghetto fighters who do manage to escape from the Warsaw ghetto, who do play a really important role in disseminating information about what happened there. 
So the fact that Antek Zuckerman and Tzvila Betkin end up in the Yishuv and they play such an important role in sort of continuing to spread information about what happened there and they rise to sort of this mythological status as ghetto fighters plays a really important role. Vlad Kamid, um, who comes to New York and plays a really, really important role, right, in sort of teaching and educating about what happened in Warsaw and the role of the underground is really important. Mark Edelman, who stays in, in Poland, right? The fact that you have these prominent figures who play a really important role in, in teaching and educating about what happened and that they happen to have been in Warsaw and they happen to sort of emphasize this, I think also plays a very important role in sort of why this place and not other places. I mean, I know that we are almost out of time, but there's one last thing that I'd like to ask you about. And maybe you can comment on it briefly. It's, uh, I think that, that you've indicated some of the ways in which the historical memory of the Warsaw ghetto uprising developed in the time period and since then as well. But this is not just a story about Jewish historical memory of the Holocaust. Um, but we can also talk about the ongoing battles over the history and memory of the Holocaust within Poland itself. In what ways does this story about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising play a part in the ongoing discussion and discourse, which is highly politicized and in many ways tremendously problematic within contemporary Poland? Yeah. And, you know, even right now, right, where we're sort of in the middle of a intense diplomatic uh, dispute between um, the Israeli government and the Polish government about, you know, restitution of Jewish property and, and sort of the broader issues that that are around the writing of of the history of the Holocaust in Poland that go back so you know in 2018 when there was the 75th anniversary of the revolt that was performed under sort of the shroud of of the law that had been passed the the sort of um, recent law about writing about the history of the Holocaust in Poland and and not punishing anyone who denigrated or accused Poles of aiding the Germans the the famous sort of I'm putting this in quotes the Polish death camp law right that you can't sort of refer to um, that these are German extermination camps not not that that were in Poland right the fact that that is so significant this sort of sensitivity of of this topic it is very real and very current up to the present day and as I mentioned I was I was just in Warsaw and all you have to do is is walk around the streets of Warsaw where you know I was there on on. August 1st, which is the date of the Polish uprising in Warsaw. And you have sort of Polish nationalists marching in the streets, carrying the red and white flag, who want to emphasize the role that Poles played in rising up. And when we look at the history of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, it doesn't take long to see that this becomes extremely controversial because the ghetto fighters at the time, who were extremely bitter about what they saw as the lack of support from the Polish underground, right? That they needed more arms, that they needed people to come to their aid. The way that the history is written, how much support and assistance did they get from the Polish underground? Were there rear guard actions that were taking place outside the ghetto by members of the Polish underground, right? Sort of these are historical questions that also have a great deal of significance. Let's think about this. You walk around the Warsaw ghetto today, you're in the center of this major metropolis which was a major metropolis in 1943, that there are 10-foot-high walls that circle in the entire ghetto, and the Germans are systematically burning down the entire ghetto 
you know, by the end of April of 1943 into May, completely destroying the center of Warsaw and uh, reducing it to rubble. And on the other side of the ghetto wall, life goes on. That you have like massive fires, right? Ashes floating into various places. So, you know, that is a is a real question, right? About, you know, how are people sort of going on with their daily lives? Vladka writes about this in her in her memoir, right? That people are walking around going on with their daily lives while Jewish Warsaw is being destroyed. I mean, that's like a very, and then you think about like, how do you process the memory and the significance of that, that this is taking place on the next street over? And it's something that even if you live in in Warsaw today, or you live in that district of Warsaw, where the territory of the former ghetto was, it's all there. It's all just under your feet. You can't ignore it. You can't evade it. And then it's very much played into the current politics about how it's remembered and did Poles do enough to help? And what was the role of Polish gendarmes and police and the Polish underground? I mean, these are all sort of questions that are very, very much currently political hot potatoes and will continue to be. Absolutely. And I mean, I feel like I opened up a can of worms almost by even asking that question at the end of our conversation, because I wish we had a whole another hour to dive into the kind of the, the politics of Polish Holocaust memory and commemoration and so on and so forth. There's so much more that we could say about it. The interview with uh, Jan Grabowski or Barbara Engelking, you can, uh, you can <laughs> yeah. talk to them well, about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you so much again for joining me on the podcast. There's obviously so much more that we could talk about relating to these issues. It's just such a powerful history just in general. And also I think raises really important intellectual and conceptual questions about history and memory, about the Holocaust, all sorts of things. So thank you for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much, Jason. And I really appreciate the the excellent questions and your interest in the topic and giving me a chance to to spend some time talking about the book. Thank you so much. And thanks to you for listening to this episode with Avi Noam Pat about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising and its afterlife. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.